John chapter 7, 53 through, that's the last verse of chapter 7, and then looking at first 11 verses of, isn't this a good verse to start on today? And everyone went to his own house. I think we're done here this morning, and uh, be warm and be filled. Uh, let's pray before we get into the word. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, as the, the old worship song says, Scott Underwood singing, it's all about Jesus. You're the only light that shines and never fades. You're the only light that drives the dark away. You're the word that made all things. The word was God. The word is God, Jesus. So, Lord, as we are about your mission and your plan, we want to exalt you to the ends of the earth. We want to exalt you in Prineville. So, Lord, when we're hanging walls and sheetrock and running wires and polishing just dirt and just all kinds of stuff, Lord, we're just doing it. It's all about you, Jesus. And this building, we're so thankful for it, but it's just a tool. And Lord, whether we have it or not, Lord, we just want to love your church and be the church. And we want to exalt you and we want to preach you to our neighbors. We desire people to be saved and to come to know you and, and even obey all that you've ever commanded. And for your glory and for your fame, as we sang today, you are the Lord, the famous one. Great is your fame in all the earth. And so uh, we just pray that even this text today, this passage, would make you even more famous in our midst. You would come uh, out as a discussion from our lips as we drive and as we sit at the dinner table, as we tuck our kids in for bed, as we walk along the path, Lord. We would just ponder your fame, even in this interesting passage today. And we uh, will exalt you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I was praying, uh, you might have heard me mention this is an interesting passage, and what a way to kind of pray about the text you're going into on a Sunday morning, huh? an interesting passage. Uh, yes, verse 53 there, and everyone went to his own house. Very interesting. I'm sure you are, are so intrigued. What kind of houses did they have? Did everyone have their own house? I am wondering these things right now. Um, no, that's not what makes this interesting. What makes... Chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, interesting, is that maybe you'll notice in your Bible that those section, that section of Scripture is bracketed or in parentheses or maybe has an asterisk by it or a reference footnote. And somewhere, maybe at the bottom of your page at the foot, is a note that says that this section was not in the original text. Okay, this was not in the original manuscript. Maybe you read the NIV, New International Version, it's preceded by an explanatory note that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. Now, if you know me, I love studying uh, the inspiration of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the canon of the scriptures and where it came from. Textual criticism interests me. It's so wonderful that, that there is nothing that we have to be in doubt 
of in our scripture and how reliable it is and how helpful it is, even as we come to a passage like this, where there may be debate that the Holy Spirit has led Christians to be real and upfront about something that is a bit confusing and something that can just be humbly open-handed about, that this is a section that we don't really know what to do with, okay? And in that, we can still lean back on that the scriptures are completely inspired and without error to the extent in which they reflect the original autographs. And the wonderful thing is, is that our faith and our Bible has, is more supreme and high in integrity and authenticity than any other book ever written. Point blank. Okay, so we can come to this text today with humility and know just as a foundation that that is the book of the God we serve. Okay, um, now with that love and understanding, you know, the, the foundation and where the Bible came from, textual criticism could itself be a series that we go into here on the Sunday morning, but I don't think that that would be super beneficial to us here in this context. We do have school of ministries and special nights and studies that will go through that and teach that subject to the church. But we do come to it on a small scale here as we come to what has been called probably the most textually different, difficult section in the whole of the New Testament and where great volumes continue to be written on this matter. One of my favorite preachers, a man of great integrity and champion of leaving uh, the banner of inspiration, says that little will be achieved by delaying on matters of textual criticism today. Suffice it to say that some of the ancient manuscripts do contain these verses. I'm thinking of a, a wonderful lecture that was done, I think it was at Veritas, um, the Veritas Forum, where one of the heads of textual criticism on the Christian case uh, would say that uh, some of the uh, criticized manuscripts, when stacked together, rise to be about the height of my pulpit. Now that might make us say, oh my goodness, can you believe that there are that many manuscripts that when stacked together, criticize and show that there are some things to be worried about there. But then he goes on to say, but the manuscripts that show the integrity and how these things where there are issues are not of any actual inherent value. They don't contradict other things that are important concerning faith or practice. And that the stack that is full of integrity, and that actually shows and trumpets the inerrancy and inspiration of the scripture is higher than the empire state building. All right? And there are, again, no other historical documents, even within uh, the Greek um, writers that are so valued from history. There's nothing like it. Okay? Nothing like the Bible that we have today. And yet, humbly, we do have to say that, yes, some of these Ancient manuscripts do contain chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. But they are only one-sixth of the very respected unsealed texts. The unsealed texts are the ones that were written in capitals, and they were the earliest of the texts. 
And that would mean that five-sixths of those unsealed texts omit this section. You've got to be humble and say, no Eastern father cites this passage before the 10th century. Didymus the Blind, as his nickname was, was a 4th century exegete from Alexandria, and he reports a variation on this story And it's not the narrative that we have here today. Moreover, a number of later manuscripts that do include the narrative mark it off with an asterisk indicating hesitation as to its authenticity, while those that do include it, as D.A. Carson said, display a rather high frequency of textual variance. And we're actually going to see that as we go through this, that there are little phrases that we kind of really love that weren't in those five-sixth original, manu- or those weren't even in there, but weren't in some of the original. So there's, there's variants that are there. Um, there are two other translations that just go on and leave a blank space where this section comes. There are others in which it will reappear in the New Testament, but in Luke's Gospel and other translations where they throw it at the end of John's Gospel. Carson says, although most of the manuscripts that include the story place it here, some place it after Luke 21.38, and other witnesses variously place it after John 7.44, 7.36, or John 21.25. It's interesting scholarly work to dive into this study, but we're not going to go into it much more than this. There are 900 manuscripts of John that do have this text, And there are questions that the translators have to ask in coming to a section like this. Let me give you four of these big questions. Number one, do these verses teach truths that violate other scriptures? In other words, are we going to find something in this section that we won't find anywhere else violating other scriptures in the New Testament specifically? And the answer to that question is no. Okay, so this section, nothing is going to violate or contradict the rest of scripture. Second question, do these verses corroborate other scriptures and substantiate them? So do, do these sections, does this section back up the rest of scripture? And the answer to that question is, Yes, they back up the rest of Scripture. Do these Scriptures fit all that we know of the person and teachings of Jesus? And the answer to that is yes. We see a very true Jesus to the rest of Scripture in this section. And the fourth and final question we ought to ask is, is there definitive and conclusive evidence that these verses should be left out? And the answer to that is no. And so when the uh, translators ask all of these questions and put them together, the majority of translators still feel that it should be put in the Bible. With an asterisk, with humility, knowing kind of where we're at with where they fit into original manuscripts. So you come to it kind of open-handed and say, okay, Lord, like this has to kind of inform how I'm going to interpret this, apply it. Um, what dogma that I'm going to bring out of it. And, uh, and so it's, it's part of our interpretive rules that we must use. 
D.A. Carson said, though he was more critical of those that would uh, study it, or, uh, or include it, I should say, he wrote, on the other hand, there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Even if in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. Similar stories are found in other sources. One of the best known reported by Papias and recorded by the historian Eusebius is the account of a woman accused in the Lord's presence of many sins, unlike the woman here who's accused of but one. You'll have to forgive me because we didn't read the text yet. and You're probably like, what's the problem? Okay, I apologize. I just assume you guys all know. You all read John chapter 8 this morning, getting ready for the sermon, praying for me as I'm about to preach it. You guys know, right? Okay. It's the woman caught in adultery. Okay, okay. The narrative before us also has a number of parallels, some of them noted below, with stories in the synoptic gospels. The reasons for its insertion here may have been to illustrate chapter 7, verse 24, and 8, verse 15, or conceivably the Jews' sinfulness over and against Jesus' sinlessness. Okay, so one thing that we do know is that John chapter 21 verse 25 tells us that there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. That's John's conclusion. And so when we come to this and we're like, I don't know, like, did this really even happen? And I think that it's fair to say, like many students, like this probably happened again it it backs up the character of jesus it doesn't contradict scripture it it actually helps bring the gospel to bear on the hearts of people that read it and so uh as john 21 says like there's a lot of other things that jesus did that could fill up books but we don't have time to, to get into those nor were they written by the apostles and prophets in a way that are authoritative or include in the authority or the canon Alistair Begg said, believe me, it would have been very easy to move from John 7.52 to John 8.12. I've thought long and hard about doing so. Even in the middle of this week, I thought about doing so many um, times after I spent many hours dealing with these verses. But for myself, I'm convinced and happy that they are an authentic part of the Holy Scripture. And on the basis of that, I want to address them to us this morning. So that was an Alistair Begg sermon. And I felt the same way a couple weeks ago. I, was, uh, I wasn't going to teach this passage. Like, I've done study on it before, and I'm like, not even going to do it. Not even going there, you know. And then I study some more, and I just pray. And, you know, talking to John, he's like, you're not going to teach it, you know. And I'm like, oh, maybe I do. You know, he's joking. We're just like, I don't know. And studying it more and more and praying and just like, man, I'm, I'm leaning more that it is something that is useful and profitable for life and godliness. And that it's something that, uh, that we can you know, have some confidence in that will help point us to knowing Jesus better and making him known. So, how are you guys feeling so far? And so, in conclusion to my introduction, we should always bear in mind that when these kind of questions surround a text, we're not going to use this text to create a doctrine all on its own, especially with the background we've kind of been given. And so we, as we look at this text, we can 
focus on a crowd that is going to appear around Jesus. Three people here, three crowds, three, three groups that I want to focus on today. Number one, there's going to be an accused, okay? There's going to be a focus on an accused individual. There's going to be focus on the accusers of that individual. And there's going to be focus today on the one to whom the accused is brought. These verses are a graphic portrayal of the depth that people can sink into their sin. In fact, in this story, both the accusers and the accused have sunk into deep sin. At the same time, these verses show us a wonderful indication of the depth of the mercy and grace of God. That God is able to reach down to men and women in their sin. As we look at each of these groups of people, we're going to be able to draw application out of them. I'm reminded, though, as we get into it, of what Tim Keller has to say when he says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Can I make that a little more personal to you? You are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. But good news, as Keller says, yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. So there's hope for us today as well. Now, chapter 7, the day of the great feast is over. Jesus has preached about living water flowing from the presence of God. There's been debate on who Jesus is. And at the end of the day, everyone goes to their own house. But Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, chapter 8, verse 1. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Kind of had one of our morning prayer and fasting type gatherings. It says, very early in the morning, and at dawn, Jesus is there at the house of the Lord, at the temple, and he's sitting, and he's teaching, and it's a place where many sort of field trips would happen. A lot of teachers would show up and their students would gather there at the temple and, uh, and, and rabbis and teachers would teach their students. And so Jesus was essentially doing that. Jesus will reference later on when he's being arrested. How many times did I just sit in the temple and teach? You could have gotten me any time there. And now you're making a big old dramatic deal about arresting me. And so as Jesus is teaching in verse three, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, dot, dot, dot. And so we have the accusers show up, okay? They are scribes and they are Pharisees. Now, scribes were members of the professional class. They were some that were uh, being able to write. They were set apart from others. Their lives were given over to tabulating the rules and regulations of the Mosaic law. So they were rule writers, okay? And then we have the Pharisees. Now these guys, their full-time occupation was being rule followers. Just real fun guys to invite to parties, you know? It's like you can hear them coming in at the party, wah, 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 you know, maybe with a little boom, 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 you know, and uh, total Debbie Downers, you know, and they spent all of their time, this is the Pharisees, 
seek to apply the rules and the regulations that the scribes would write. They were their passions, writing and fulfilling the law. But these men weren't only marked by the law, they were marked by brutality. We're going to see that these guys were brutal religious leaders in the account ahead of us. And that they caught a woman. These events, the catching of an adultery, had to be substantiated by corroborating witnesses of multiple people. They had to be present. There had to be visibility. They had to be able to validate the detection of the action of adultery. The language hints to us that these individuals, these religious leaders, set a trap. In fact, they're setting a double trap. They're setting a trap for the woman that's been done, and now they're presently setting a trap for Jesus. Now, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. There's no getting around it. She's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, guilty with no reasonable doubt. But you may notice that it takes two to tango, and where's the second one? The very fact that the man is not brought and was probably even set free suggests that this whole thing was a frame-up. Adultery is not a sin one commits in splendid isolation. Maybe the man was fleeter of foot and just such a romantic, he just totally bails, you know. But for whatever reason, she is brought by herself, guilty, caught, and the authorities seem less interested in ensuring that even-handed justice be met out on both parties, rather than, as Carson says, they want to hoist Jesus onto the horns of the dilemma. They're going to use this lady merely as bait, as means of trapping Jesus. One writer says that they are cruel here. They are vindictive here. Seems that they have no personality, no feelings whatsoever. That this woman is merely a pawn in a procedure where they have an ulterior motive in view, and that is they want to seek to destroy the Lord Jesus. And she and she stands before Jesus, being drugged before him. And as she stands here, it is a display, number one, of the religious leader's brutality, and number two, of the religious leader's hypocrisy. It's true that as she stood there, and maybe as she stands there, you might ponder how you have read this in the past. How do you see this woman when you've read it? You don't get the sense that she's obstinate. You don't get the sense that she's rebellious. You don't get the sense that she's spitting and, you know, gnashing out the teeth and just, you know, fighting. And, you know, it seems that as she's there, you, you can picture, you know, and of course you can read it yourself and see if this is where you're at, but almost a staring at the ground in shame, realizing she's been caught, 
realizing her sin is before her, before the religious leaders, and before her God. And, you know, in the midst of all the drama, it gives you a bit of compassion for her, doesn't it? When you know that there were two to tango, only she's brought, that these guys, the leaders, have ulterior motives, and they're trying to use her as bait to catch Jesus in a trap, you begin to have compassion for her. And yet our compassion ought not excuse her sin. It was sin. It was adultery. It was a breaking of the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. And that's what our text tells us in verse 4. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And so there's the catching, there's the guilt, there's the shame. She's been caught. There's no running from it. There's been a breaking of Moses' law. There's guilt. And there must be payment and a penalty for sin. God doesn't just wink at sin. God doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. And neither does he call us to do that. It's true that this woman is in sin. And it's true what the scripture tells us. That sin is pleasurable for a season. But afterwards, it, it yields these fruits of destruction. It's true what the scripture says, that our sin will find us out. Unless you be so fast in judgment, which is kind of a lesson for us in this text, Jesus tells us and brings adultery down to a heart level, where he says, you heard that it was said in the days of old Matthew five twenty seven. You shall not commit adultery. And many of us will, hear, here. Yes. Don't ever do that. You know, I'm glad I've never done that. How about you? Yes, me neither. Never done it. <laughs> Good show, you know. And Jesus is like, okay, you filthy sickos, I've got something to tell you here. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his ha <laughs> ha oh is it getting warm in here <laughs> oh never done that either how about you friend nope don't okay all right guys if you haven't lusted after a woman you've got another problem okay every one of us gents here has fallen in this area of coveting what is not ours in a time when it's not ours. And Jesus brings the issue of adultery to a heart issue where the same kernel of sin that is in adultery is in the heart of a person when they are lusting after someone who is not theirs to have. It's the same thing. And Jesus tells us in that passage that it is so serious that if you cannot stop with the lust issue, you need to take drastic measures to cut it off. Hebrews tells us you've not yet gone to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And Jesus says, hey, 
It's better for you to gouge out your eye and chop off your hand than it is for you to enter hell with your hand and your eye, but you got to have your lust. Take drastic measures. And whenever someone says, I've tried everything, you can say, I'm not seeing blood yet. And now that can go, I mean, of course, that goes far. And, and the basic application over the centuries has not been that you're just chopping off hands. But are you chopping off the internet connection? Are you chopping off the smartphone? Are you chopping off your privacy that you value so much that you can't get away from these stumbling blocks? Are you chopping off that office relationship? Are you chopping off the friendship and the private texts and the phone calls? Are you chopping it off? Women, are, this isn't just for men today. Are you chopping it off, gals? It's that serious. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So this all comes really close to home for us. That maybe we never had an extramarital affair But there are so many other things that are on the same level that we have done that we, it brings us to humility before the Lord where we say, woe is me. I'm just as much a sinner as that guy and that gal. And I need the mercy and grace of Jesus. Oh, how when someone is caught in the act, it's easy to just jeer at them. And give them the condemning look. And you're sick and it's twisted. And I encourage you to look as we read on. What's the look and the attitude that Jesus gave someone? Who was even caught in the act? It's true that the sympathy we have for this woman in her tough and cruel predicament should not distract us from the sinfulness of this woman. It does remind us that the gospel has the first part, the bad part, the bad news, that you are more wicked and sinful in and of yourselves than you ever dared imagine. And I hope you can hear that today, and I hope you can realize that, that even though you may be one of the most clean and polished and successful looking individuals there ever were, apart from Jesus Christ and before Jesus Christ, You are a sinner that the wrath of God abides upon and your destiny is hell where his wrath will be poured out on you for all of eternity. That's you no matter how squeaky clean you look on the outside. Apart from Jesus, you are more sinful and wicked than you ever dared imagine. And the Pharisees and the scribes try to, you know, help bring this home that that's this woman's state. In verse 5, Now, Moses, in the law, if you'll remember, we wrote it and we try to apply it, and you might remember that. He commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Or as one of the original manuscripts says, but what about her? What do you say about her? Just kind of remember some of the law that they're referring to. Leviticus 20.10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress 
shall surely be put to death. It's the law that they're referring to Jesus here. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. So what do you say, Jesus, having us bring up these fine references to you today? Verse 6 says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This is an incredible story. I mean, it's so cool that when I found out that, you know, it wasn't the majority of manuscripts, original manuscripts, I was like, Ah, because this is just cool. I mean, I wish I was this like with it, you know, that when the tough stuff comes, you know, one of my favorite guys to listen to is Jock Willink, former Navy SEAL, does all these leadership podcasts. And he says, when you're in the midst of a really hard situation and your heart kind of goes up into your throat and you don't know what to do, he says, disconnect from the situation, you know, disconnect and just kind of. Get a broad swoop of what's going on and just allow yourself to just be disconnected so that you can just get your bearings and come back into it. And I'm almost like, is that what Jesus is doing here? They're like, what should you do? And she's standing there and everyone's looking and time to disconnect. (laughs) Always been good at Mickey Mouse's. (laughs) Bart Simpson was a fave in fifth grade. (laughs) can of spray paint bart was here and what were you guys saying about this lady (laughs) you know yeah i i don't believe that he was disconnecting but it's amazing to think that the same hands that created the earth are now writing in that dust the same dust that he used to form the first man adam he's now writing in that dust amazing to think that the hands that would spit in the dirt and make a pace and wipe them on the blind man's eyes so that that man would then wash the mud off and see those same hands are now spending time in contemplation before the accusers and the accused these guys plotting how they might entangle him in their talk And as Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger, many of the manuscripts leave out the phrase, as though he did not hear. Do with that what you'd like. Nowhere in this narrative or in his artistic drawing time does Jesus condone the woman's activity. But neither does he condemn her. What does he write on the ground? Go study it. Get a PhD on the matter. And you'll discover what he wrote on the ground. Actually, the fact is that we don't know because it doesn't say. But there's a few thoughts out there. Maybe Jesus wrote the names and the sins of those who are accusing. Bartholomew? <laughs> saw you smoke that cigarette outside of the, you know, I'm just kidding. Some said he wrote their judgment. 
Some say he's just merely turning away from disinterest and is doodling on the ground. He wasn't there to hear their stories. Perhaps he just couldn't look at the horrible scene before him. All of these hypocritical sinners and the woman before him. In verse 7, so when they continued asking him, I mean, they are pressing this situation. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He's riding in the dust, and he looks up and brilliantly says what couldn't have been said any better or any more masterfully. He sends them back to their own law that they themselves wrote and keep. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. If there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you a man or a woman who's been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it's told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently... And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who's committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the peoples. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, there's a little bit of a trap here because the Jews in their trap are trying to get Jesus to say, yes, follow the law of Moses and stone her. And by doing that, the Romans will hear that Jesus is telling them to commit capital punishment, which the Romans forbid the Jews to do. But if he says, no, don't do that, we're in a different day and age, and capital punishment just ain't cool, then, oh, you don't believe the law. So they're trapping uh, Jesus here, and Jesus, in a double take, refers them, first of all, to the law of Moses that says, hey, you're the one that sniffed it out, you're the one that investigated it, And according to the law that you write, you got to go do it. The one who witnessed it is the first one to pull the trap door on the gallows. The one who witnessed it is the first one to toss the stone. But Jesus adds something very, very, I would say, New Testament. And that he says, but you better be careful because if there's sin in your life that hasn't been dealt with, then you're operating in hypocrisy and there's going to be judgment doubled back on you. In Romans chapter 2 verse 1, Romans chapter 1, Paul goes and gives this great legal case against all humanity that they have sinned and worshipped all kind of idols and given themselves over to all kinds of lusts and wicked and depraved things. And the Jew would be sitting there listening to that saying, yeah, you bunch of sickos. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, oh, now you just hold on one minute. In Romans 2, 1, it says, therefore, you are inexcusable, oh man, 
whoever you are who judge, for whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. These guys were being completely hypocritical, had set a trap for this woman, and the language in the context, all of my studying, shows that they were wicked in the way that they maybe even set up this affair against this woman or for this woman. Not that she's innocent, but they were behind it. Okay? And Matthew 7 verse 1 brings it to home a little better for where Jesus was getting at with these hypocrites. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Now hold on a minute. Some of you are new to Calvary Chapel, and you got to know that we actually teach on this quite a bit, but not in the way that you would think. You see, besides John 3.16, John 7.1 is like one of the favorite Bible verses for our world to quote. Judge not, and how many times have you heard it, and how many times have you said it? Judge not, Bible says judge not. You just better not judge me, and judge not, and judgey judgerton, Okay. And they never read the rest of the next four verses, and they never read the rest of the chapter where we see in the rest of the New Testament and the rest of Scripture that there is actually a place for judgment. It just must be done in righteousness and in humility and with the hopes to always gain the individual to the kingdom of God. And so I'm sorry, but we have to move past your favorite memory verse, okay? Judge not that you be not judged. You're even King James Version. Judge ye not that ye not judgeth with the judgings, okay, or something like that. Verse 2 says, for with whatever judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, you mask wearer. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When I was a freshman in high school, I saw this movie that was based on the book of Matthew, And every verse of Matthew showed on the bottom of the screen as this guy acted out Matthew. And, you know, it was a a whole movie. Everyone acted out the book of Matthew. And and this guy that played Matthew was, like, the best-looking Jesus character you'd ever, like, just the biggest smile and just someone, you just want to go be with that guy. And I will never forget being 14 years old and watching this Jesus character act out this scene, you know, where he's trying to pick out a little twig, you know, or a little sliver out of his friend's eye but he picks up this giant piece of driftwood, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, and he's, like, walking around with it, and he's trying to, you know, he has a plank in his eye or a beam in his eye, and he's trying to get it, you know. You don't normally want people digging around in your eye anyways, let alone if they are visually impaired, right? And it says in our text in verse 8 that again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Again, what was Jesus writing on the ground? A long-standing interpretation in the church has been that he wrote part of Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, 
O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Or the NIV version of that says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. Lindsay made egg McMuffins for us this morning. (laughs) Not back to normal after the fast. Um. And so maybe he's just writing the names of individuals, of these individuals there that have turned away from the Lord. T.W. Manson was the first to suggest that Jesus was imitating the practice of Roman magistrates who first wrote their sentence and then read it. In any case, the explanation wasn't satisfactory for Derrett, who suggests that the first time Jesus stooped down, he wrote Exodus 23.1, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. And the second time he stooped down, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. I've got a few more things that aren't all that important of what people have thought that they were. It doesn't matter. Do you understand it? It doesn't matter because it doesn't say. (laughs) Okay. But I kind of like the thought of Jesus writing in the dust Maybe the individual's names who are playing the hypocrite and what they've done. And the reason I kind of go there is because he just asked him, hey, if you are without sin, and if you're not walking a life of hypocrisy right now, and if you're righteous, then you go ahead and be the first one to throw the stones. And then he begins writing, you know, and Levi is like, I'm out, (laughs) you know. And Judah's like, ah, not me, you know, and could you erase that? You know, don't want anybody walking by and seeing that. In verse 9, it says, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So beginning with the oldest, maybe those that should know better. You know better. You know how much you need forgiveness. Where's the forgiveness towards her or even the hope of mercy for her? You know that you've been forgiven much. And as Jesus says, he who's been forgiven much loves much. Romans 2.22 says, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And maybe he was writing, you're telling her not to commit adultery, but you were here last weekend, or you were there, or you've been lingering here. Jesus shows that there's not one of them without sin, and there's not one of them who's able to throw the first stone We know from the sum of scripture that church discipline and disciplining unrepentant sinners is a biblical and loving thing to do. As Hebrews 12 says, he who the Lord loves, he rebukes and chastens. Or which one of you among you have a son and you do not correct him? It's correction that is a sign that your son is loved. And correction within the church is a great, great sign of love but it must be done properly humbly reflectively with the purpose of gaining the brother 
As John Calvin said, no man, therefore, shall be prevented by his own sins from correcting the sins of others and even from punishing them when it may be found necessary, provided that both in himself and in others he hates what ought to be condemned. And in addition to all of this, every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. In this manner shall we without hating men make war with sin. We want to make war with sin. But we want to do it in love with the purpose of gaining the sinner. And so by verse 9, those who'd come to shame Jesus now leave Jesus in shame. What John means here is that the big ring of accusers that were around the woman has melted away and she was still standing there, as the NIV says. Something about the, the man Jesus. She didn't just run away and glad that's over. But she stayed in his presence. And when Jesus, verse 10, had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman... Uh, that saw no one but the woman is not in the majority of the original manuscript. So you kind of earlier on, I said there's some different variants, okay? So that's something that you just got to note in all of it. He said to her, woman, where are the accusers of yours? No, of yours in the original, okay? Just Where are those accusers? Has no one condemned you? He calls her woman, which, by the way, was entirely respectful in that age. And as he just asks her, where are those who were seeking to harm you? Where are those that were accusing you? She said, no one, Lord. Kind of an interesting answer, I thought. Where are they? No one. <laughs> That's not what I asked, but okay, thanks for uh, getting, back, getting back to me on that. The only three words, she, and that, that's how it is in those high-stress situations, like, no one, you know? It's like, okay. The only three words she says in the story, no one, Lord. And the most beautiful phrase here, neither do I condemn you. Jesus speaks in closing out this section. Speaking for the hope that he will secure for her on the cross at Calvary. And that hope moves her, her or ought to move her towards a life of obedience toward him now. As he says from now on. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Stop doing this stuff. You see what it does? It's so destructive. There's so much shame in it. It brings disaster. It's against the commandments of the law of Moses. Stop it. Like, see what my grace does. See what my purchase that I'm going to do on the cross does for you. I purchased freedom for you. I purchased forgiveness for you. Now go your way and stop sinning. Jesus, like God himself, has the right to forgive sin. 
And the proper response to mercy received on account of past sin is purity in the future. Because that is what moves us as Christians to living lives of purity, living lives of chastity, living lives of celibacy, living lives of monogamy and purity and saying no to sexual immorality and running away from perversity. It's what Jesus has done for us when he said to us, neither do I condemn you anymore. I forgive you. I bought your forgiveness with my blood that I shed on the cross. Now what do you do in light of what I've done? Now you go and live for me and go spread this forgiveness and hate sin because of what it did to you and what it did to me and what it's done to the world and what it's even done to the hypocrites. Just hate it and run from it and live for me. The NIV's leave your life of sin establishes the point directly. Not only does he forgive her, but he transforms her future. There's a hymn that says that there's a way back this morning from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open that you may go in. At Calvary's cross, that's where you begin. When you come as a sinner to Jesus. This woman being caught was the best thing that could have ever happened to her. Because it brought her to Jesus. And though that there was great treachery and brashness in the men that did it, It was God's gift that brought her to the feet of Jesus where she could learn of forgiveness. It was the open door in front of her that she could come in and know what would happen at Calvary's cross when she came as a sinner to Jesus. We'll have the worship team come on up. Interesting what Matt Carter said. Who in his, uh, this was in his commentary, exalting Jesus in John. Who has the right to forgive sin? We can forgive someone who sinned against us, but our forgiveness doesn't absolve guilt. Suppose you're in Jesus' position and you forgive this woman. All of a sudden, the wife of the adulterous man comes up to you and says, what right do you have to forgive this woman? How dare you? Did she even sin against you? What would you say? It's not up to you to forgive someone else's sin. You don't have that authority. Now, If the angry wife walked up to Jesus and asked the same question, what right do you have to forgive her? Did she sin against you? Jesus can say, yes, she did. And not only did she sin against me, but I will take that sin upon myself. I even will become her sin for her. That's why I've forgiven her. Carter says in conclusion, Jesus does not ignore or excuse her sin. He acknowledged her sin, but he came to save sinners. Not a beautiful thing. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us, that he might become the righteous, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He forgives us of our sins and he takes our sin upon himself 
that we might be seen in the eyes of the Father just as if we've never sinned. Are you in that state before God today as you come to Calvary Chapel today on a Sunday morning? Are you in a state before God where Jesus has taken your sins upon himself so that when the Father looks at you, he looks at you just as if you had never sinned before ever, not even once in your entire life? Have you put your faith in Jesus and confessed your sin to Jesus and said, Jesus, I have done this, 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 and this, and this? In fact, as the psalm says, if he numbered our sins, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you might be feared, that psalm says. Have you confessed your sins before the Lord? Lord, if you numbered every one of my sins that I did from the minute I was born until now, how could I ever stand before you? But I hear from the psalms that there's forgiveness in you. I often think of my sins written on a scroll. And that scroll is dropped and it begins to roll and it rolls all the way. You know, this was back when I lived in Corvallis when I thought of this, you know, and it's just like, oh, my sins, they, they're rolling all the way down I-5. You know, they're going all the way through Oregon, down I-5 and up and down the hills. And then, then they're in California. Oh, no, they're making their way to Mexico. I mean, I'm not even exaggerating, you guys. This is who you got standing before you today, a sinner. But by the grace of God, he's drawn me to Jesus. And I've had every one of those sins forgiven. I've come to Jesus as a sinner. Have you come to Jesus as a sinner? You can come to him today. I'd say let's sing a song, but I don't know where our song singer is. (laughs) There he is. Perfect timing. One, One final hymn, if you'll stand with me today. Four lines. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We're not told what the woman does after this. You know, go your way and sin no more kick some dirt in his face and run off. It's not really the sense that you get. I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic and give people the benefit of the doubt, and I kind of think that she relished that freedom, treasured that forgiveness, was transformed in an instant and became a follower of Jesus. She went home and she told her relatives and her family of the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And today I hope you find that as well. Let's pray.